0: So, I know that uh, many of us are familiar with this passage. This, of course, is the beginning of what we typically call the Ten Commandments. Uh, Usually, these verses are said to contain the first two commandments the first in verse three, and the second in verses four and five, depending on how you break it up, right? Uh, Just in case you're not familiar, though, with what we're reading here tonight, if you just saw the lights on and stumbled in the room or something like that, welcome. (laughs) That's actually how bunch of people got here. Anyway, uh, what we're reading tonight, this took place more than 3,000 years ago, and God's chosen people, Israel, had been slaves in the land of Egypt, same place where Egypt is today. Uh, The whole nation of Israel had been slaves, and so God had sent a man named Moses to, to be a leader for them. He was one of them, and God had freed Israel from slavery. That story is told in the first 19 chapters of the book of Exodus. And he did huge public miracles that literally forced Egypt to release Israel. And in Exodus chapter 19, uh, you can read that God had led Israel into the desert east of Egypt uh, to a mountain. And his presence had come down on the top of the mountain. And he had begun to speak to Moses and called him up to the top of the mountain so that he could give Moses his directions for the people. And that's why the first verse that we just read of Exodus 20 says, And God spoke all these words, saying. And tonight, we're going to look at a few of the things he spoke. But before we do, I just don't want to miss the fact that God spoke. It's actually a pretty big deal. One of the most important truths about God is that he is the God who has spoken, and he is the God who speaks. And in verse 2, We see what he wanted to say to Israel. In fact, in some ways, because this is what leads off all the things that God says to his people in the next few chapters, and even the next few books of the Bible really, it kind of almost gives even more weight to these words, this beginning of this running speech of God to Moses and to Israel. The things right here that we read, that we're reading tonight, are top priorities for God. And the first one, is that Israel would know exactly who was speaking with them. You can look at verse 2. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Right? Historically, they had literally been in slavery in Egypt. So notice the first thing that God does is to identify himself here in verse 2. It's really important to God that Israel knows who he is. Sometimes we say that knowing God is not a religion. We say that around here. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. And the reason that we say that is that in the Bible, we see that this is exactly what God has shown us. We say that because that's that's how God talks in the Bible. God doesn't want us to think of him as just like some sort of list of beliefs or propositions or something or a set of rules we have to keep uh, or rituals that we have to perform. A lot of us were shocked and surprised and overjoyed to realize that right he he wants us to actually hear his word and and he wants a situation where we talk to him and he teaches us and we follow him and to put it mildly i guess he rubs off on us you could say it that way right it's much bigger than that but a relationship that's what we mean when we say when we say the word relationship and we really mean it right you mean it when you say it to your coworker You don't have to use religion to approach God. That's not actually what he wants. So you can have a relationship. Now, it's the kind you would have with God. It's not the kind you would have exactly with your next-door neighbor. He's still God, right? Uh, But that's what he was doing at this moment with Israel. He was initiating and establishing a real relationship. And he names himself there in verse 2. Our Bibles, I think probably most of the Bibles you're reading, the English Bibles, say the Lord. The Hebrew text has that kind of strange four-letter Hebrew word that God uses to refer to himself. Of course, if you don't know this, the Old Testament is translated out of Hebrew into whatever language, I mean, tons of languages. Ours is obviously English, right? But the, the, the word that, that those English words the Lord translates is that four-letter word, roughly equivalent to YHVH or YHWH in English. Uh, and that's the word that God uses to refer to himself. That's, that's his name, you could say. And think about it. Telling someone your name when you introduce yourself is, it's a personal, relational thing to do. I was thinking, you probably don't do it at Taco Bell when you order a grande meal. Do they still sell grande meals? Is that still a thing? They used to. There used to be this thing called a grande meal, and it was, anyway. Hi, I'm Brian, I'll have the Mexican pizza, you know, like, <laughs> we usually we typically don't do that, right? Mexican pizza, best thing on the menu. Anyway. But you do it here at church, right? Tell people your name. You do it to your neighbor. You do it to the person who's going to work next to you. And God does it here for us. And the fact that he did it on that day actually points to something much bigger than just that moment in the history of Israel when it occurred. What it points to is that everything about God is personal. He's not just, you know, you hear like philosophers sometimes on YouTube, philosophers are the best, right? You hear them, you know, talk, he's the greatest of all possible realities. You hear these kinds of phrases, right? He's the principle of all existence. What does that even mean, right? You hear people say stuff like that. No, that's actually not how the Bible reveals him. He is someone. And he has a particular history. And he had already created a certain history with his people by the time these events in Exodus 20 occurred. In this case, he could identify himself to them as the one who had acted on Israel's behalf when they were helpless to save themselves. He was the one who freed them from slavery in Egypt. So he's the God who speaks, and he's the God who does things. And the things he does are huge, powerful things we need him to do that nobody else could do. As Israel walked with God through the desert on the way to the land he was giving them, and he was speaking to them. He was giving them his laws and directions for how they were going to live in the new land they were coming to. And so he freed Israel from the slavery in Egypt, from having to serve Pharaoh, and then he gave them his law so they could serve him instead. And as they followed his teaching, what they would find out was that Egypt's rule, they had experienced the rule of Egypt, it crushed life. That's why there were slaves there. But God's laws actually enabled their lives to exist. His law actually opened up life for them. That's what the Ten Commandments do when you read them rightly. You imagine a, a world where, imagine a country. Imagine, I'll just do a city. A city. Imagine if in Philadelphia everybody kept the Ten Commandments. Would that be a better place to live? or would that be a pl- Or would it be better to live in a place where nobody kept any of the Ten Commandments. I mean, the, the answer is any, you don't have to be a Christian. You could be an atheist be like, I'd rather live in a city where everybody kept the Ten Commandments because life could flourish there, right? Things would work. Just those ten. It would be awesome, right? But it would be cool if they did. I know. <laughs> Sorry, Bruce. Right? The point is that God's law actually enabled life to exist, uh, and the first law, maybe the most important, is this, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. God was establishing, again, a real relationship with Israel. And having other gods would be the ultimate offense against that relationship. A commentator I like on Exodus named Dwayne Garrett translates this verse. You shall have no other gods in my face. That's a, you get that right away, right? And he says, this is a quote from him. The idea is that something offensive to Yahweh is, these are his words, right in front of his face. Yikes. You get that, right? That, that makes sense to us. In other words, God di- didn't say, look, don't have any other gods in front of me in your lineup of gods. Like, make sure I'm, I'm always your first place god and keep all other gods, like, second place. You know, maybe even a distant second, right? No. No other gods before me means no other gods in my presence. That's the idea. And since, if you read your Bible, you know, his presence fills heaven and earth. That means no other gods at all. And what he says in verse four obviously now connects to that, that verse verse three. Look at verse four: You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. So, just to pause there for a second. So Israel was never to make an image of God. It says, and that word image is used in the translation because the Hebrew word, behind the English word, means uh, something carved out of wood or stone, carved into, in this case, a a figure, an image, right? Uh, But it's almost always used, if you look up how this word is used through the Old Testament, it's almost always used of the little statues that people would make, either to be or to represent their god. An idol, we call it. It's used of of an idol. And the beginning of verse 5 confirms that this was what God was referring to when he said this about making images in verse 4. So God commands Israel not to make any image to bow down to. And I guess this would refer to any image that was supposed to be an image of the Lord himself. You know, this, this is the Lord. Here's a, an image of him. Or as verse 3 says, of any other God. No images for any kind of representation of any God for any kind of worship. No images at all for the purpose of bowing down to. And this is because, as another commentator, Alec Mater points out, he says, the reason for this, at least one reason, there's probably many reasons, is that God is spiritual, we see in the Bible, and self-revealing. And when we worship him, I like this idea, it's essential for us to fill our minds and our imaginations only with what he has revealed and with what he has spoken. So, you know, you worship the Lord. It's very hard not to have something in your mind. Our minds aren't supposed to go blank. So what's supposed to be filling our minds as we worship God? Well, it's supposed to be what he has revealed about himself and what he has spoken. Images made by humans are inherently inferior to everything God has already revealed about himself. And, as we all know, specifically images have the tendency to shape our thoughts But the only faithful guides for our thoughts about God are the things that God has revealed about himself. That's the only faithful guide to how to think about God. So the second command helps us keep the first command in terms of how we think about God. And of course, the closer that our thoughts thoughts about God are to what God has actually told us about himself, the better we can know him, right? That's going to help the relationship because you're actually going to you know, you've been friends with someone for a long time, and you are like, I got the chocolate cake you love. And you're like, I, I'm like allergic to chocolate. Like, do you even know me? That's like a major trial in my life, right? If they don't even know the true facts about you, you might be like, are we friends, right? Like, and so this, the closer our thoughts about God are to what God has actually told us about himself in the scriptures, the better our relationship with him is going to be. Conversely, the further away a person's thoughts about God get, from what God has told us about himself. Think about this. The more likely it becomes that they aren't actually thinking about or praying to the true God at all. They might think they're talking to God. You probably know some people like this. You're like, I don't know what God you're talking I hope you're not talking to anybody because if you're talking to somebody, we're in trouble. I don't know what God you're talking to. Right? It might be talking to some God they made up or some God that other people made up. Deuteronomy 4 actually expands on this command. I'm just going to read this from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15. God says, take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Mount Horeb out of the midst of the fire. And the idea is beware lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any You didn't see a form, so watch out that you don't get tempted to make a form, is what he says in Deuteronomy, that looks like a man or a woman, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth or any winged bird that flies in the air or anything that creeps on the ground like a snake. People worship, all these things, right? or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And he says, and take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven, that beware that you don't feel driven to worship and serve them, he says, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. A quote from John Calvin here. John Calvin wrote about this. It is a confirmation of the second commandment that God manifested himself to the Israelites by a voice, and not in a bodily form, from which it follows that those who are not contented with his voice but seek a visible form, substitute imaginations and phantoms in his place. That's pretty big language, but I think you get the gist there. Am I worshiping a phantom? I don't want to. Then I I would be on a quest, all of us would be, to let our thoughts be shaped by what the scriptures reveal. And it's not that God cannot or would never appear in any kind of visible form, right? The scriptures record that he actually did do that from time to time, even in Israel's history. But in Exodus, I think he was trying to drive home a certain truth that nothing that man can come up with or make, nothing that humans can create, can ever be an appropriate representation of him. That's the point. So here, in this instance, as he's teaching this truth, he didn't appear at all, he just spoke. A voice from somewhere in the fire, somewhere on the top of the mountain, right? Same thing happens in the, in the tabernacle when they build it. They didn't see anything, but a voice spoke from above. It says in the book of Numbers, I believe, from above the Ark of the Covenant. It's crazy. It's so cool, right? Like, you just think about that. Here's God revealing himself. His word was the sign that Israel could know he was there and that he was addressing them. And this is a side note. But his word today is still the sign. That his people can know he's there and he's addressing them. And just because it's in a book doesn't make it any less mysterious and powerful and wonderful. And it's not any less the presence of God. Right? Now, verse 5 points out that what Moses was predicting in Deuteronomy 4, that, that there is something about false gods that draws us to bow down. It's so weird, but this is here, right? To worship and serve them. And so God gives the command in verse 5 specifically not to. He says, you shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. And he's talking about these idols, these carved images. So, so two parts to this verse. First part, don't bow down to them. In other words, don't humble yourselves in front of them. Don't worship them, right, obviously. Don't, don't act like or even don't even believe. Don't actually believe that they're greater than you. The thing that would drive you to bow down to them. Don't think that way. Don't think they have a claim on your allegiance I think that's all in that command not to bow down and we know from what happened to israel as you read forward in their history on from exodus 20 that the temptation was actually strong for them to do this exact thing because they did it just a few chapters later you can read it they did it maybe it wasn't days later when moses was still up on the mountain talking with god and you know personally Any of us might read this. You might read that and you think, it's not really something I struggle with. Like, I would never do that. I would never bow down in front of a statue. It's not like I'm getting tempted. Like, oh, I almost bowed down to an idol yesterday. Glad I resisted that one, right? Like, probably most of us aren't thinking that that's something that we're tempted to. But the the second part of this command, the way it's said might help us see how this, this could actually happen to someone. Or... What different forms this might take where maybe physical bowing wasn't present, but something else was. Look at what God says. The second half of the verse, writes says don't bow down to them. Second part, don't serve them. And you just think, what makes us serve some? Why do we serve someone? We serve them, I think, if they have authority over us, real or imagined. We think they have authority over us or they really do have authority over us, right? We serve them. Or maybe if they have something we want, like money, right? We serve a boss or a company or something or the customer, whatever, because they're going to give us the money that we want and need. See? Right? You serve. We serve someone, I think, if we think they know more than us, and we need their knowledge. Or we might serve someone if we need their direction or their help or something like that, right? The fact that God needed to tell Israel that they shouldn't serve these idols, these false gods, means that this was going to be a temptation for them. You know, the old, the old things that we say. Like, you don't have to tell kids not to eat dirt, but you do have to tell them not to eat the fifth donut. You know, because why? Because the fifth donut is a temptation, but hopefully, when they're old enough anyway, a lot of kids anyway. You know, you know, you know the idea. He says it because he, he knew this would be a temptation for them. They were going to have needs in life. The world being as messed up as it is, life was going to be hard. Things were going to happen, right? We all said there's a lot going on. Yeah, they were going to have days where there was a lot going on. And they were going to get confused. And they would need information. They were going to get lost. And they would need direction. They were going to get hungry. They were going to need provision. They were going to get attacked. They were going to need protection. That's the world that we live in. It's the world they lived in. They were going to face all these things. And whenever those situations would arise, God wanted them to immediately remember what he said first in this passage. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He had already shown them that he could humble their greatest enemy and break the strongest bonds and lead them through a trackless desert and provide water from a rock. He had already done all that. He knew the way to go, and he's really generous with that knowledge. God's not stingy with what he knows. He loves to share his ways and his wisdom with his people. All they needed to do was to depend on Him by trusting Him and obeying Him, and He would be all they ever needed. And that's like the message, the central message of the whole Old Testament, isn't it? That was God's message to the people of Israel. But the temptation was going to be, as things went forward, for them to forget that or to panic when it got rough and to run the other way and to call out to other gods. Now, the gods of Canaan, the land where they were going, We're actually very attractive gods. Those gods were all about prosperity and fertility, right? Food, money, sex. That's what the gods of Canaan were about. Get what you need. Get what you want. That's Canaan. Worship the gods that help get you where you want to go. It's what we might call, I think, the carnal impulse to idolatry. There's a a drive to worship idols. It's just like that thing is going to get me what I want. But I think there's another impulse, another drive, that leads people to idolatry. And maybe you could call it the anxious impulse to idolatry. And to understand how that one works, I think, that other sort of drive to idol- idolatry. It's important to understand that when people make idols, currently, now, and, and back then, when they made an idol, when, when, when people are making a representation of God in the belief uh, that the God they want to have will be present in the idol. That was the idea. I'm going to make or I'm going to buy the representation of the God I want to be with me. That's how it was happening, right? Or it, the, the, that God is going to be in that statue or at least with that statue as long as I do the things that that God likes, right? So each God has their things that he or she likes. Get that statue, I'll do that stuff that God wants, whatever it is. You know, I don't know. Did Zeus like steak? I don't know. Whatever, right? You have to know the rules. And then you'll have that God with you. And so what's really going on in that kind of idolatry is that the person chooses a God they want to help them, and they think that by having the idol and serving that God in a particular way, they can then command the God and control the God To make that God give them what they need. I think that's how it works. Like almost like we would think of like a genie. That's what I thought of as I was looking into these things. The idol, if you have it, you know, in your home or whatever, in your temple, and you serve it by doing what it wants, then it helps you command that God's help. You need security. You need prosperity. You need direction. Serve this idol. This God will give you the things that you want. It's a way to help yourself feel safe, I think, right? And this is exactly what went on, again, just a little after Exodus 20, when Israel made the golden calf, if you know the story. They specifically said, make us gods to go before us. That was what they said. We we need lead. We don't have, you know, Google Maps or whatever. If we did, we'd be okay, but we need a God to lead us. They weren't sure where they were. They weren't sure how to get where they were going, right? And they weren't sure what God was doing up on that mountain for so long or where Moses really was. Like, it gets a little dicey a few chapters in. They needed God's help. And so they decided that they would get it like everyone else gets it. Maybe prayer wasn't working. It's like, why sit around in here in the desert trusting God, a.k.a. doing nothing, right? When all we need to do is get the right God, the God of direction or whatever something we can see and we get we can get moving again get our life started again and so when we understand all that we can see that when god says you shall not bow down to or serve anything you've made it must mean that there's a human tendency to think that these gods and these idols actually have something to offer and god says don't think that don't think they know more than you don't think they're any wiser than you. Don't think they have a claim on you or that you owe them anything. Don't ask them for direction or insight or counsel. And as soon as we see it like that, I think we can see some immediate applications to our lives. Right? You know, we don't, as a general rule in our society, typically you know, go to not Christians. I know. I hope none of you do. Right? Go to places where there's little statues and worship them or have. You know, statues in our houses we bow down to. And I know these things are becoming more common, right? Drive by buildings that look like temple these days. You know what I'm talking about? One with gold all over it in Ben Salem, near the parks, right? It looks like it might have an idol in it. I don't know. I don't know. I can't read the writing. You might have a Hindu family on your street that has this sort of thing in their house, right? It's not that it's unheard of. But generally, in terms of the culture that most of us have grown up in, we like to think of ourselves as kind of beyond that, right? We've kind of like evolved past that, this little thought, these little thoughts that we have. But really, we're not. We haven't. All you have to do to see what's going on is to ask a question like, when the typical American feels unsafe, what do they think they need? The typical American. Do they turn to the living God? For safety and security, or do they need a security system? Right? A gun. Whatever. When they feel anxious, where do they turn? Typically some kind of medication. What, what do they think will secure their ability to stay free and happy? Typically the answer is money. If you get rich enough, nobody can tell you what to do, right? When they need direction or they have a question, especially a burning question, where do they turn? I think typically they pick their phones up when they ask it. I'm not saying that if you use a phone or a gun or anxiety medication, you're worshiping an idol. I'm not saying that, obviously. That's not, not the point. Christians can make use of all those things, obviously. Otherwise, most of us would have been indicted by that list, myself included, right? But when we consider our society as a whole, we just think about what's going on around us. I think what we've discovered here in America is that this experiment that we call the modern world really is an experiment. What we've discovered in it is that when a people leaves behind superstitions and statues of gods to pursue science and technology instead, which is really what we've done, what happens is not that they start depending on the Lord more and more. Now that they're done with idols, right? And when you say that, it's almost like a joke. All that happens is that people switch over from depending on those statues to depending on their science and their technology. They trade. Statues for tablets or whatever, right? There's so many warnings against idolatry in the Bible that we can basically know that if we're not worshiping and serving the true and living God, the Lord, if we're not finding what we need in him, human beings will turn to idols. It's really either or. And so these commands weren't just there for Israel, uh, you know, because Israel had come out of Egypt and all of its idols, and they were going to Canaan with all of its idols. These commands really are for all time for God's people everywhere. The Lord knew that in human hearts would be a drive, a tendency to to make something and then to ascribe the powers of deity to that thing. I have just created God. The Lord knew that people would want to do that and feel like they, they could do it, and then to serve that thing and worship it. And it manifests in all kinds of ways. Anytime humans are tempted to revere, obey, and work for something that they've made, it's it's a kind of idolatry. And I also think that that tendency is always going to manifest itself in a drive to find something other than God to depend on. Something else that's going to lead you out of the wilderness into the promised land. Something else that's going to fix the problems facing all of humanity. Something else that's going to usher in, we would call it the millennium, but other people say things like utopia, right? Like, we're going to make something so impressive and powerful that it summons a power that we actually, we think we could actually depend on that power. And that's actually, I think, the paradoxical part of it too, right? As I was reading through this passage in Exodus and studying it, think about it. You keep running into these two. It's a little bit of a paradox. Humans want a God with more power than they have to help them and protect them. But they want a God they can choose and create in their own image and whose power will be at their command. That's why I kept thinking genie. That's a genie. It's blue. And Aladdin rubs the lamp and he comes out, right? Incredible cosmic power. They're willing to serve that God. As long as that God gives them what they want. And it's not only in the New Testament that God's people are... I'm sorry, in the Old Testament. I just gave it away. It's not only in the Old Testament that God's people are warned against that way of thinking. Jesus' followers are warned against it, too. So I'm going to read to you First John 5. Here's the end of the book of First John. He says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding, that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. That's how John ends his letter. Just this blunt, like, you can feel the urgency in it. Keep yourselves away from idols. Christians, John's writing to, right? It's actually all over the New Testament. When you start looking it up, you go to Blue Letter Bible, type in image or idol, whatever, idolatry, idols. Peter wrote that our past lives before Christ were full of all kinds of sin and he includes idolatry in the list, 1 Peter 4:3. Paul wrote that one of the works of the flesh and when I'm not energized by the spirit of God, what's going to come out of my just my normal humanity minus God, he wrote one of the things that comes out is idolatry. That's Galatians 5:20. Right? It's there a lot. And in Revelation 9, verse 20, I'm going to read this verse. Revelation chapter 9, verse 20, we read this. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. That verse, Revelation nine twenty, is a vision of human society around the world, at the end of time, worshiping the works of their own hands, which turns out, it says here, to be worshiping demons at the same time. There's totally a connection. In other words, for some reason, men and women have a strong impulse, again, to create something and then to worship it. And that worship can take the form of an actual thing, specifically designed for worship. We would call that an idol or it can take the form of something that wasn't actually designed to be called to God, but that thing gets treated maybe by a whole society as if it were the most important thing or the most powerful thing. It's given the place of God. People fear it or they love it more than anything else. They pray to it. They ask it all their questions. They obey it. And then in Revelation 13, a lot of you know this, I love being at a church where we know Revelation. Revelation 13, I want to tie it into this study. You read this, verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. Right? If you're not familiar with the image of Revelation, John didn't actually see animals ruling the world. The beasts are prophetic images of human rulers their true nature would be the idea, right? And exercising political power, right? So the second one causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He, the second beast, second great political leader, performs great signs. He's usually called the false prophet. So that he even makes fire come down on earth in the sight of men. But there's an even bigger thing he does. Revelation thirteen fourteen. he deceives those who dwell on the whole earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the first beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image, there it is, to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship that image to be killed. It's craziness, right? just started reading Revelation at dinner with my boys, because I thought that would make for a great dinner conversation. <laughs> it's absolutely what they want to be reading, so I have no problem keeping their attention, right? The issue of idolatry, the problem of idolatry we see in the book of Revelation runs right up to the end of history. Think about it now. God tells us that as things start to wrap up, we can expect a talking idol to be a central part of the most powerful government on earth. I'm just saying plainly what that verse says. That's not in the past. That's in our future. According to Revelation 13, it's Satan's ultimate counterfeit. He makes something, or he has something made, I should say. In his image made, I don't know. There's a lot of interesting things about this, right? But probably an image of the beast, of the the political ruler. Looks like a man, most likely which can talk, and command. It says it commands, right? It causes as many as would not work. It issues decrees, this idol, right? The culmination of all idols, the ultimate idol, maybe you could say. And, you know, it's interesting, this passage, because in the Old Testament, one of the ways that God exposes the idols Israel struggled with over and over again was to point out that they couldn't see or talk or do anything, right? So, actually, it, uh, let me just read to you from Psalm 115. I'm just going to read Psalm 115 really quick here, so we totally have the time. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory, because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? But our God is in heaven, this is a great verse. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they don't smell. I love that he gets this detailed, right? They can't even smell, right? It's true. They have hands, but they don't handle it. They can't hold things feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. They can't talk, he says. Those who make them become like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. And it goes on. That's Psalm 119. But in Revelation 13, I think we see that Satan actually wants to solve that problem and overcome that. He doesn't like that criticism. Maybe that's always been a sore spot with him that God could point out so easily. Those things can't even talk. He's like, well, you just wait. And when the restrainer stops restraining, he is granted the ability to make one of the idols talk finally and speak with authority, right? God's going to let him do that. And it's important for us to know that that kind of spiritual pressure is out there in human society. And it's one of the reasons Revelation is written. The impulse to idolatry is not going anywhere, whether it's inspired by Satan or it's hard to tell. Has it always been in humanity since Adam and Eve sinned? That drive to create a God who's not the real God is enduring. And it's central to our sin. And it's actually central to Satan's struggle against God. Because if he can turn our hearts to idols, then we'll be most separated from God. I think that's the idea, right? Which means that as believers, we should know that humans are never going to transcend that impulse, that desire. One of Satan's lies is this idea that if we invent enough technology, we'll somehow be, again, like I said in the beginning, a higher form of life. And we won't have the same kind of problems like those primitive people who worship statues. We'll be so far beyond them, right? Because we have, you know... Netflix or something, whatever, right? Tesla, obviously we would never worship statues, but Revelation actually exposes that lie, the book of Revelation, and shows us that Satan is actually using that lie so that he can bring us all right back to regular old idolatry. And we won't even realize he's doing it as humanity, it seems. The impulse to listen to and to trust and worship and even bow down to the work of our own hands, which is energized by Satan and deceives us into believing the fantasy that we've actually created a God who's going to help us and answer us and save us. That impulse will be with us to the end, us humans is the idea. And that means that as followers of Jesus, again, we should be aware that it's alive and well in our world today. And I think that's the general exhortation from this Exodus passage. Understand that human desires to control God and demonic desires to separate people from the true God are always going to be combining those two desires to draw people into fearing idols more than they fear God. In every age, it's going to have a different manifestation, I think. Whatever people call it, though, that's what it is whatever tag is given to it, whatever people are all excited about, that's all it is. If we let God's word explain our world to us, we'll always know what's really going on. So that's the general exhortation. Second, I think there's a personal exhortation. And I think it's actually something connected to what Mike has been teaching through in 1 Corinthians, if you've been here. Paul told the Corinthians, we just studied this a couple weeks ago, to abstain from idolatry. And it seems like he taught them that, and then their questions immediately ran to things like, so can we have like nothing to do at all with anything that had anything to do with idols? Like the meat, right? We we studied this. The meat that they offered to idols, and there's some left over, and they're selling in the market. Some of it went to an idol. Can we buy it? And Paul's answer to the Corinthians was along the lines of, that's not what I'm saying, right? There's no power in those statues. It didn't like make the meat evil meat or something, right? That's not how it works. Eat the meat. It doesn't matter. Those things can't hurt you. But, he says later in the letter, don't think that means you should go to the temple where the idol is worshipped and participate in the feasts and the ceremonies. Don't go be part of it because there's demonic power in all that. Paul says it explicitly. Don't get mixed up in that. In other words, in every society, we're going to be brushing up against things connected to idols all the time. I think that's the message, one of the messages of 1 Corinthians. Just part of life. Don't worry about it. There's no real power in any of those things, right? I have an iPhone in my pocket. I'm not an idolater, right? No fear. However, always be aware, I think Corinthians would tell us. Be aware of the things that the world is totally caught up with. Notice it. What is everyone really excited about or really getting afraid of? Or what are they really banking all their hope on other than the Lord? That would be the idea. And I think the Holy Spirit would say to us from the scriptures, don't participate in that flood of wonder and fear. Everyone's always going to be getting caught up in the next big thing. Don't treat the world's idols like God's by bringing to them things that should only be brought to God. Don't bring it your deepest, darkest. Go confess that to God, right? Don't ask it for life direction. That's who the Lord wants to be for us. Don't be all freaked out. Doesn't the scripture say this very clearly? Fear God. And fear is part of it, right? And so that's what's really going on, I think. And, you, and, and what's the heart of the matter, I think, for God? You look at the end of verse 5, back in Exodus 20, if you, if you turned. In Exodus 20, verse 5, the end of verse 5, he says, like what's God thinking about in all this for all that we just talked about? He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That's it. It's relationship. Isn't that what it says? Remember verse two. God says, Don't bow down to idols. I'm the Lord your God. I brought you out of the house of Egypt. And and God says that over and over again. Don't worship idols. I'm the only God who actually speaks to you. Don't get deceived. Whatever talks, it's not God, right? I bet you when those people hear that statue speak in Revelation 13, it's going to be the most powerful experience they've ever had in their life. And the deception of something that people made that can talk is going to be so strong, they're going to worship it. And God's like, no, I'm the only God who speaks to you. You're not going to hear another voice of another God, right? I'm the only God who acts on your behalf. He says to Israel, I delivered you out of the bondage of Egypt. He says to us, I delivered you out of the bondage to sin, right? No one else. He's the only God who saves. He's the creator of heaven and earth and us. God says, I am your God. And to ignore him and to choose something else is actually evil. And God judges evil. Look at the next part of verse 5. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Idols don't care enough about you to be jealous over you. They don't actually know you exist. Right? But the real God does. And statues don't care. The algorithm doesn't care. But the maker of heaven and earth cares. Isn't that good news? God was jealous of this relationship he'd established with Israel. And why wouldn't he be? If they distorted their picture of God, if they invented or borrowed other gods and stuck them right in front of his face, it would ruin everything about that relationship. They ran to other gods when they had trouble. And what he says is that he would cause the effects of that to be felt by whole households, because, again, it was going to ruin everything, and everybody would suffer from that rupture between humanity and God. The ultimate sins eventually usher in the ultimate consequences. Idolatry is a big deal, and God judges it in a big way. However, look at verse 6. He doesn't only judge evil. Again, he's not just an algorithm. He's personal hes I don't even know what this means, but he's infinitely personal, whatever that could even mean, but it's true. And so he can show mercy, too. And mercy from God is always bigger and potentially longer lasting than the effects of our sin. And so even when the logic of human justice might call for judgment, God, in his infinite kindness and wisdom, can show mercy. That's what he says in verse 6, showing mercy to thousands. I think the idea is thousands of generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. And again, I think the tragedy in all this, if someone gives in to the fear and the frenzy and begins to trust and serve idols, false gods, instead of the true God, it's not just what they're doing, it's what, it's what they're missing out on. I just want to read a passage from the book of Isaiah and I think that you get the idea In Isaiah 46, God names two idols from the land of Babylon, Bel and Nebo, and this is what he says. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. This is the Lord speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Listen to me, O house of Jacob. And all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. And even to gray hairs will I carry you. I have made and I will bear, even will I carry and I will deliver you. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? They lavish gold out of the bag. And they weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. And they prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulder. They carry it, and they set it in its place, and it stands there. And from its place it shall not move, God says. Though one cries out to it, yet it can't answer or save him out of his trouble. Maybe that idol that's going to be made in the last day can answer, but it will not be able to save. Isn't that true? Remember this, God says. And show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Indeed, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. And then he says, Listen to me, you stubborn hearted who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near. It shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger. And I will place my salvation in Zion. For Israel, my glory. God starts talking about world events there and future history. And I think that brings up something as we close in a minute here. If you don't know Jesus Christ tonight, first of all, I hope that didn't sound absolutely crazy to you. Hopefully you just heard the word of God that we were reading. Because the truth is that God has done even more than just speak from a mountain. That was amazing that day. The mountain burned and a voice spoke. I mean, I can't even imagine what that was like. I would love to have seen it. But something even greater happened. There was a day where God opened his eyes in a little baby's body, so to speak. And he grew up to be a man, not a fire on top of a mountain, a human being. Jesus from Nazareth. And he walked around doing things and saying things that the people that were closest to him started realizing, that's God. They started worshiping him. And he proved himself worthy of that worship. And if you don't know the story, after he showed that he was the most incredible human being that had ever lived, the kind of person that literally people would leave their whole lives like, I have to follow you. And it was worth it. He was false accused he was executed by the Roman government, nailed to a cross we're reading about it on a Sunday mornings, so you should come out if you're not familiar with the story and he died and he paid for the sins of every human being that ever lived, including yours whatever you've done the true God when he took on a form it wasn't a statue it was a living, breathing man a good man best man that ever lived that's, who he, that's what he became so we could look at him right John says we looked at him we heard his voice we touched him you know the verses his, his closest followers are like he was real he was a, a real man and he let himself be killed in our place and if you don't know that tonight the idols don't want you to know it and they won't tell you but the true and living God does want you to know and the Holy Spirit is speaking it in 2023 to anyone who will listen. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn away from the idols and be saved. Be saved from all the things that are freaking out everyone in the world. Whatever you think about the problems that people are so worried about today, you can be saved from all of it because Christ has already solved a bigger problem. It's I don't know. I'm not a scientist. Maybe climate change is a problem. Maybe wealth inequality is a problem. Maybe it's, I'm not, whatever. You can have your pins. It doesn't really matter. Let's just grant that those things are the biggest problems facing humanity because that's what's scaring everybody out there. That's nothing for Lord Jesus. He'll fix it all in a second. He's already done the greater work because the bigger problem than any climate change is my sin and your sin. Our sins have separated us from God. A warm planet will not separate me from God, but my sins will, right? And so if you are still in your sin, the Lord God loves you and wants you to know that he's already solved that problem. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from sin once and for all. Your guilt can be gone. Christ paid for it. And you can be forgiven and know that you have the promise of eternal life. No idol can do that for you, but the Lord Jesus Christ has done it. So you're invited tonight to believe in that and to trust in the living God and find true life and actual salvation. And better than anything anyone's ever going to make, what happens then is that the Holy Spirit comes and you have friendship with God, closeness with God, right? While people in their frenzy try to create a God who's finally going to be able to solve their problems, he's already come and revealed himself. And he freely offers himself to anyone who comes and asks. So let's stand and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you loved us enough to reveal yourself to us. You haven't left us alone, Lord. We thank you that you are the God who speaks. We thank you that you care. We thank you that you're jealous over us, Lord. And we pray that in these days, like all days, but maybe increasingly, Lord, as the days wax late, this pressure to trust and fear and reverence and serve and pray to other things. Just pray that you would give us the strength of your spirit to recognize these things and resist them and instead offer people a way out and preach the good news. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.